If you have your Bibles, turn please with me to Exodus 5 this evening. Exodus 5, as we continue through our study of this second book of Holy Scripture. First, we will read God's Word, and then we will pray and ask for His help and blessing in our time together. Exodus chapter 5, we'll read the whole of it tonight, a familiar passage to many of you as we read of the increasing hardship that Israel has made to endure as Pharaoh gives this new order that they should continue to produce their quota of bricks, but now without straw. Let's look now to God's holy word, Exodus 5, beginning at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The four men of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, send us the ministry of your Holy Spirit now as we have opened and have read your word. As we sit and gather under the scriptures, under your word, teach us, we pray. Give us hearing ears. Give us submissive and receptive hearts. Help us to understand, to treasure, and to apply all that we study tonight. Seal your truth to our souls. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, 5,000, give or take, years have gone by, but the tendency toward discouragement and impatience among God's people, as well as the hard, slogging difficulty of obedience that God's people experience, as well as the ongoing need for encouragement and the perseverance of God's people, these things have not changed one little bit. Before us in Exodus chapter 5, I dare say, is a fairly typical picture of discipleship. Here, you see, here's what I mean. Here is a picture of a servant of God being faithfully obedient. Moses, Aaron, doing what God has summoned them to do. And he is immediately met with pain and difficulty and resistance, and almost right away, he wants to quit. And he's hardly even begun the task that God has given to him. Now, it would be very easy for us to look down our noses at Moses. What a wimp. What a coward. God's just encouraged him. He's just given him signs and wonders, and he's spoken to him in his own hearing verbally. He's given him the sign of the throwing down of the the staff that it would turn into a snake, promises of great power and deliverance. He's got the staff of God, the rod of God in his hand, and he's already here, one chapter later, sputtering out. Pathetic. But tell me, how often have you woken up on a Monday morning entertaining very similar thoughts. You've just experienced the Lord's day. This day of rest and gladness for God's people. You've met with God. You've you've met with him in the preaching of his word. Perhaps it's been a, a Lord's Supper Sunday and you've feasted at his table. You've been with him in prayer. You've been with his people. You've seen grace exhibited in, in baptism just like we saw earlier this morning. You've heard professions of faith. You've, you've, seen, you've seen evidence of life change, a life that was not what it once was. You've seen real gospel growth and grace exhibited in the life of your brother or sister in Christ. You've seen answer to prayer. You've spent the day feasting during this market day of the soul. Our college chaplain, where I attended undergraduate, was fond of saying when he would get up in the pulpit, it's a great day in the kingdom. And I said that to a few folks after our service this morning, after the baptisms and the professions of faith. It is a great day in the kingdom. It is a great day in the life of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge. And you come away from days like this thinking, oh, isn't grace sweet? Isn't Christ glorious? Isn't our God full of mercy and goodness and deserving all our praise? And you come home from evening worship and you get home and you settle in for the night and get ready and for the Monday morning and the work week that is ahead. And here comes Monday morning. Chores, sickness, nasty co-workers, a belittling spouse, an insulting supervisor, wayward children wandering from the faith, more health problems, more pain, more sadness, more death, more decay, 
in our society. What gives, Lord? What gives? Oh, how quickly we forget. Yeah, Moses was unique in the history of redemption, no question. He prefigured Christ and the greater and better redemption that God would one day work for his people. There's never been a prophet like Moses ever since in all the history of Israel as he was leading an entire nation out of slavery and into the promised land. But don't forget, Moses was fundamentally a disciple, a believer in the one true God, a follower of Jehovah, a Hebrew worshiper, one who strove to believe God's promises, one who strove to obey God's commands, one who was tempted, tried, and often failing. Sounds an awful lot like me. Sounds an awful lot like you. Sounds an awful lot like discipleship and a pretty frequent day in the average Christian life. Well, tonight Moses and Aaron have now at last come back to Egypt. At the end there of chapter 4, remember, as we looked at this last week, they delivered God's message to the people of Israel and the elders there, and it was met with joy. You see there at the end of uh, verse 31, there at the end of chapter 4. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's, that's the Sunday morning, Sunday evening, that's the Lord's Day spiritual mountaintop. That's where they are. The chapter 4 ends in doxology. God has heard our prayers. Isn't he good? He's going to move for his people. Isn't it wonderful? And then we come to chapter 5. And now it's time to go and preach that same message to Pharaoh. So here they come, Moses and Aaron, adrenaline pumping, encouraged by the, the words reception among the Hebrew elders, among the slaves. They're marching into the courts of Pharaoh's palace with the, with the word of the Lord thundering on their lips. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And then, pff, like the sad and pathetic whimper when someone lets the air out of a balloon. You know what that sound sounds like. Stubborn and hard-hearted Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And Moses and Aaron are demoralized and deflated, verse, excuse me, verse 22. And as a consequence, as they march into Pharaoh's court and are met with his stubbornness and are told no, despite God's promises to a contrary end result, now it means, now it means for the Hebrew people, increased suffering, increased hardship. All of this as a result of obeying God, all of this as a result of doing what it is we're supposed to do, and it gets worse for God's people. What in the world is going on? And as we look at chapter 5, that's what we want to consider. How do we make sense of things when obedience, when faithfulness on the part of God's disciples, when obedience to God is followed not by ease, but it's actually followed by suffering and hardship and discouragement? And so on the one hand, we have Moses and Aaron who exemplify, for their part, faithful obedience. What, what faithful obedience and service to the word of God look like. But then on the other hand, we see Pharaoh, king of Egypt, whose behavior exemplifies rebellion and unbelief and ultimately a despising of the word of God. And, and that's what we're trying to understand. How, how can obedience to God's word result in trials and hardship and pain like this? So we might take this chapter and outline it like this. And if you have your outline printed in the bulletin, it reflects that as well. Verses 1 through 5, we see a personification of faithfulness. We see Moses and Aaron doing what they're supposed to do. 
But then verses 6 through 19, we see a personification of sin. And we see the response of Pharaoh and his minions and his hardness of heart. And then finally, in verses 20 through 23, we see the plan of the Savior. A personification of faithfulness, a personification of sin, and then the plan of the Savior. So let's think about these three things for a few moments together tonight. First, let's think about the personification of faithfulness that we see in Moses and Aaron. Notice in verses 1 through 5, they are preaching. And then if you let your eyes scan down to the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 23, they are praying. The only times Moses and Aaron appear in the chapter, this is what they're doing. It's really quite simple. It's a pretty good description of gospel ministry and the role of the church. Look at their preaching, verses 1 and verse 3. Now, they don't give Pharaoh the whole story, but one thing they emphasize both in verse 1 and verse 3 is God's purpose. God's purpose. And it's something far more transcendent, you see, than merely the release of his people from slavery. Did you notice that? Why does he want Pharaoh? Why does God want Pharaoh to let them go? That they may hold, verse 1, a feast to me in the wilderness. Down in verse 3. That they may go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I love how one commentator put it at this point. He says, God's grand design in the Exodus is worship. God's goal in Moses and Aaron's preaching is worship. That is the purpose of God and all that he does is your worship. When God delivered the Hebrews, it was not simply that he might focus his attention on the Hebrews, but that the Hebrews might focus their attention on the God who saved them. And when God delivered you, believer in Jesus Christ, from sin and death and hell by the work of his son, the Lord Jesus, he did it not to make much of you, but that you would make much of him, that everything about you would revolve around him. That is the purpose of God in the preaching of Moses and Aaron, close quote. But notice, notice what they say. They come declaring, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Right there in the midst of verse 1 of chapter 5. No mellowed, played down interpretation to take off the rough edges. No adjusting the message to make it palatable so that it might be more effective to a hostile culture. As if, by the way, our culture were more hostile than the culture Moses was walking into. Hey, Pharaoh, mighty king of the world's largest empire, my God says you need to release all your Hebrew slaves. Sound good? Not exactly a cozy, hospitable, open-to-the-gospel context that he was walking into. Now, no question, our culture is growing more and more hostile by the day. At least it seems that way from my vantage point to the things of God and Christianity. We may have some tough things to face and some tough headwinds in the very near future. And so there might be, might be more than just a, a small sampling of the kind of faithful posture we can take when it comes to advancing the message of our Lord and God when we're up against hostility and animosity and fearsome territory. No, no watering down. Rather, Moses and Aaron speak the very words of God to a world that does not know him. To, to speak God's word after him is what they do. That's a model of faithfulness, and that's a picture of what our ministry should be as his people. That's a picture of faithfulness in a not too terribly dissimilar environment. 
But then look down at verses 20 to 23. So you see the preaching aspect at the front end of chapter 5, but they're also praying here at the back end of chapter 5. Their boldness in preaching seems not to have been terribly effective. Pharaoh has responded to God's commands with menace and with anger, and he has only increased his burden upon Israel. Moses and Aaron attempt to persuade their masters to lighten the load, and then that fails, and look at verse 21. The Lord look on you, the people say, and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The people are saying to Moses and Aaron, who are supposed to be their heroes, who are supposed to be their, their intercessors and their meteors, mediators, we stink in his sight, Pharaoh's sight. And now they're driving us and working us and slaving us even harder. And it's all your fault, Moses and Aaron. Some redeemers you turn out to be. Thanks a lot. Well, tell us what you really think, right? And now the, the wave of, of adrenaline and the spiritual high and the excitement and the fervor and the anticipation of what the Lord was about to do, the, the, the mighty acts that were about to take place, that, that doxological adrenaline rush that they came from at the end of chapter 4, it all comes crashing down. The Hebrews who heard their preaching at first received it with joy there at the end of chapter 4. And here they are cursing their names. Moses and Aaron, the Lord judge you for making our lives a misery. But notice how Moses and Aaron respond. Last time, you may remember, at the end of chapter 4, we studied Moses and Aaron's preaching to the elders, and we said that their faithfulness has resulted in fruitfulness, and that ordinarily, that's how God works. Ordinarily... In general, we acknowledge, of course, that there are exceptions, but ordinarily, when his people obey him, God blesses and people believe and worship. Well, now we can add another principle to that equation. Faithfulness ordinarily leads to fruitfulness, yes, but as one commentator was keen to remind us, fruitfulness ordinarily comes after many delays, discouragements, and reversals. God is going to save his people, just as he had promised. But chapter 5 shows us a, a period of delay and discouragement along the way. All of us, brothers and sisters, would do well to remember that as we serve the Lord. Faithfulness ordinarily leads to fruitfulness, but fruitfulness often comes after many delays, discouragements, and reversals. The Bible, God's word, is realistic. This isn't, this isn't pie-in-the-sky, higher-life, wishful thinking, or some sort of quasi-prosperity gospel. No. Faithfulness to God's commands ordinarily leads to his blessing upon our efforts. But Scripture, and the God of Scripture, is very realistic about life in a fallen world. Very realistic about life in a fallen world. That those blessings are often attended with and are surrounded and come out of a context of delay, discouragement, setback, and suffering. But despite, despite these setbacks, look how Moses responds. Do they respond in anger or defensiveness to the people? Ah, Who knows? But they are angry. They turn to the Lord. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Moses and Aaron, they do complain. They do cry out. They do vent their anger. But at least they complain to the Lord. They go to God. But, 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 but wait a minute, you say. Is, is Moses that daft and forgetful? Go, chapter one, verse tw- excuse me, chapter four, verse twenty-one. God told Moses that this was how it was going to go. He told him. God so- told Moses, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go." What is Moses complaining about? This is exactly what God said would happen. Look how he complains. Why have you done evil? Why did you ever send me? I spoke in your name. You've not delivered your people at all. What's Moses doing? He hasn't forgotten that God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But neither has he forgotten that God promised. He promised to save Israel. And so he presses, do you see? Moses presses God to deliver on his promises. When I was a camp counselor in my undergraduate years, one of the most surefire ways that my campers could push me to give them something that they wanted was if they reminded me about an agreement that I had made earlier. If you're a teacher, I suspect that your students are like that too. Boys and girls, when mom or dad agree to do something, but then later it seems like they're not going to, it seems like they aren't going to do what it is they promised to do, what do you say? But you promised. But you said so. You said you were going to do this. See Moses here? Lord, these are your people. What are you going to do? Will you let your covenant promises fail? Did you not promise to do this? Do you pray like that? The Puritans were known to say that we must sue God for his promises. We must sue God for his promises. What is prayer so often but simply praying God's promises back to him? Praying the words of scripture back to the author of scripture. Now, there is an arrogant way to pray. Absolutely there is. But it is not arrogant to pray God's promises back to him and to plead with him. Oh, Lord, Lord this, this is what your word says. This is what you have sworn to do. This is what you delight to do. You've sworn by your own name. We, we, we don't know what timeline it will take. We don't know what shape it will take. But this is what your good pleasure is according to your word. Please, please bring it to pass. You've promised that you delight to do this. Please do so. Is this not simply what Jesus directed in the Lord's Prayer when he said, Pray thus, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Moses and Aaron pray. Bold, insistent, confident, not in their own cleverness, maybe with no small degree of exasperation, but no, no, bold and confident in the unassailable promises of the God of the covenant and the God of covenant love. As one man puts it, if in preaching we must say what God says to the world, if in preaching we say what God says to the world, in prayer, Moses teaches us to press what God says on God, to press what God says on God. So that's the first thing that we see here in our passage, a personification of faithfulness. But now let's see the reaction of Pharaoh. Here we see the personification of sin. You've heard of the scientific principle. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Yes? Well, 
For all of Moses and Aaron's faithfulness, Pharaoh's response is equal and opposite. Stubbornness and evil tyranny and rebellion. It's a picture of a heart dead in sin and deaf to the things of God. It's actually quite chilling to behold when you take it in. Verse 6, word is sent to the Egyptian taskmasters, to the Hebrew foremen, and then on to the people, that the quota of mud bricks required from the Israelites would remain the same. But the straw, which was a key ingredient in the brick making, up till now that had been provided to the Israelite slaves as a courtesy, maybe to keep the assembly line running more efficiently, to save on time, the straw had been provided for them. Now, no longer. Now that straw is going to be something that they have to gather themselves. And the reason, according to verse 9, the twisted version of the truth from Pharaoh, is that the people are lazy. They've obviously got too much time on their hands. Otherwise, they wouldn't be given over to these, these rebellious thoughts and these outrageous notion of slaves making demands to their master. Who do these people think they are? They're obviously idling the day away, listening to the, the scheming ideas of these Johnny-come-lately preachers. Naturally, as expected, they fail to meet their required quotas since the straw is not provided for them. Verse 11, on a, and as a result, the four men are beaten. So the four men go and plead their case, and they explain how unfair the conditions are. Verses 15 down through 18. And they are met with disdain. You see what he says there? You are idle. You are idle. Get back to work. And then, and then verse 19, it's, it's, almost, it's almost, almost comical in a, in a sad and ironic sort of way. When the taskmasters, having already been beaten, given these ridiculous work quotas, they go to Pharaoh with their complaint and they get his malicious response and they say, and the text says, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. You think? You're only now realizing this, fellas? But what's at the root of all this, all this trouble and this suffering that now befalls the children of Israel? Well, look at verse 2. Look at how a heart full of sin and wickedness dead in trespasses and hostile to the things of God. Look at Pharaoh's response to Moses' announcement. Who is the Lord? And of course, that's the all capital L-O-R-D, so he's invoking God's covenant name there, Yahweh or Jehovah. Who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let the people go. You've heard the phrase delusions of grandeur. Well, here we have that on steroids. It's delusions of deity. Over and over in Exodus, we see this theme play out, the competing claims of power and sovereignty, the one true Lord versus the king of Egypt. It's God versus a man who thinks he is God. And that was true in Egyptian theology and cosmology that pharaohs were believed to be a sort of quasi-deity on earth and become a full deity upon their death. That was part of the religious system of Egypt in those days. That they were living gods on earth, ruling the kingdom until they departed this earth and then returned to rule in the other realms. What we see here is not so so much an intellectual difficulty for Pharaoh. No, you see, many of you know this, in the ancient world, they had no problem believing that there were other gods that existed besides the gods over their culture or their country. They very likely believed that there was a God who ruled over the Hebrew people and that his name was Yahweh. 
But they were convinced that their own gods were far more powerful and they had proven that the Hebrew God was impotent because they had enslaved his people for the past four centuries. It's not that this God of the Hebrews didn't exist. It's rather just that Pharaoh could not be bothered to listen. Our text even helps us see the arrogance and the delusion of Pharaoh in his response to the commands of all God Almighty. Do you see it? Here's, here's a window, a window into his, depra- into his depraved heart and deluded mind. You see verse 1? Moses and Aaron come and deliver God's message to Pharaoh. Thus saith the Lord. Moses and Aaron deliver God's message. And how does Pharaoh respond via his servants? You see it down there at verse 10? So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus saith Pharaoh. Yikes. I mean, seriously. We cringe until we realize that this is a sin and delusion that we toy with all the time, isn't it? In many ways, it's one of the oldest sins in the book. I am God unto myself, and I will bend the knee to no other. How many of us live in such a way? When confronted with the truth claims and the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, and we won't yield. We, 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 we stubbornly refuse to bend the knee in this department. Thus far you may go, Lord. You can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this, but you cannot have that. I will not yield that. Oh, to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender some. Most. Not all. We're not in terribly unfamiliar territory after all. So you can see the conflict, I hope. These two competing claims of lordship and godly sovereignty, Yahweh versus Pharaoh. Moses comes proclaiming a message and Pharaoh says, not so fast. I'll show you. You think your God can tell me what to do and how to rule and how to operate in my domain? Not so fast. I'll show you. And he invokes misery upon the Hebrews. Moses, for his part, he seeks to obey. He seeks to be faithful and things get worse. So how do you make sense of a world where when you seek to obey the call of God, things don't get easier, they just get worse? Well, here's where we have to look to our third and final point. First, we've seen the personification of faithfulness, then the personification of sin, but thirdly and finally, the plan of the Savior. And here, we need to, we need to peek ahead one verse. We've covered all of chapter 5, but peek ahead to chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord, they're, Moses and Aaron, they're crying out to God, you have not yet delivered your people at all. And the Lord said to Moses in response to their despairing cries, chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. How with a strong hand, I'll send them out with a strong hand, and I'll drive them out of his land. Why does God do this? Why, why make the job more difficult for Moses and Aaron instead of paving the way smoothly toward deliverance? He does it, he says, according to chapter 6, verse 1. He does it because he is setting the stage for the maximum display of his glory and grace. And actually, this idea really gets at the heart of the gospel message. What we see here, great suffering and pain preceding great deliverance. And and actually, great pain and suffering and misery and, and evil being subverted for great glory. That's the story of scripture over and over and over again. 
We see this pattern. We, we come to Exodus and we say, we see, we, or rather we say, of course, this is so like you, Lord. Of course you do it this way. What you did with Moses, it's what you're doing with us. It's what you did with the Lord Jesus. That's why we read John 19 earlier in our service. Think about John 19. You think of John's description of the crucifixion. Christ there on the cross, crying out in dereliction, seemingly abandoned by God, suffering unspeakably. And again and again in John 19, John punctuates his narrative with, this was to fulfill the scriptures. Did you notice that refrain repeating itself throughout John 19 as we read it? Verse 24, verse 28, verse 36, verse 37. This was to fulfill the scriptures. What is the apostle John saying to us? He's saying this was the plan all along. The suffering of the cross was the plan of God to bring salvation and deliverance and grace to my people down into the darkness of Golgotha that he might bring us into the light of life. God told Moses that in the sufferings of Israel he would work a great salvation. And it all points to the sufferings of another, to the sufferings of the cross by which God worked a greater salvation to all, for all who believe. And looking there at the nail-pierced hands and the crown of thorns on his brow, looking at the cross, do we not see there, brothers and sisters, do we not see there more clearly than anywhere else what God can do? Glory out of pain, salvation out of suffering, redemption out of the horror of the cross. At the end of the day, this chapter, Exodus chapter 5, ought to be an immense comfort for us. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I've been obeying God imperfectly but faithfully and things sure haven't gotten any easier. If that's how God has worked in the sufferings of Israel and if that is how God has worked supremely in the sufferings of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, don't you think that that's how God will work in your trials and your burdens and your sorrows and your pains? Brothers and sisters, your pain is never wasted. And this is no therapeutic guarantee that it will all end up better soon. This is no Disney fairy tale. Your pain, whatever you're going through, it may be hard, maybe for a long time, maybe maybe even all the way until you go home to glory. Maybe in this life you'll see no real tangible purpose or no ultimate end for it. I don't know. But it is not orchestrated with some kind of sadistic agenda. The Lord ordains it all for the working of his grace in your life and for his glory in the world. How quickly we forget that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That that what men intend for evil, God intends for good. And that the judge of all the earth will do right. As one man says, you don't need to know when the light will dawn through your dark night of the soul. You need only know that God is sovereign and that underneath are the everlasting arms and that you, believer in Jesus, you are safe. Close quote. So in the meantime, brothers and sisters, let us persevere. Let us be faithful to his calling on us in Christ. Let us press him for his promises. Let us sue him for his promises, as the Puritans said. And when things get worse and not better, let's trust him that he's orchestrating and using even such darkness to show forth his glory and his grace. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are true.
and that your word is sure. We bless you that your promises are immovable. So teach us, teach us, we pray, to find safe harbor in your perfect sovereignty and to rest on your word. Help us, help all of us in our various trials as you have providentially brought them into our lives. Help us to see what you will do and to trust you in the meantime and to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.